This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I am super, super excited. JP and I are together virtually, and we are delighted to have on the show today Dr. Scott Sigmund. I had the chance to meet Scott uh, at OSET, which is the Orthopedic Summit on Evolving Technologies, fun meeting, and he is the host of a really, really popular podcast I'd encourage you to listen to called The Ortho Show. Uh, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Mike, you know, it is a pleasure to be here, and you sound like, you know, you sound so professional on this podcast. <laughs> I was expecting you to just sort of blow it up like you are in person, but you're very serious today. I'm going to be a little bit more serious just to fill the role. But Scott, uh, you know, just to introduce yourself to our listeners, and remember, our listeners are mostly neurosurgeons, neurosurgeons in training, and neurosurgery wannabe folks. Tell us a little about your background, your history, and how you came to this place. Yeah, I'm a big fan of branding, you know, within the world of, of, of medicine. So I, I, if you don't mind, I'll give you my shtick which is how I start off, you know, most of the time when I'm on the podium. And, and that is I describe myself as the original opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon, healer of knees and shoulders left and right, hashtag follow the fro, host of the ortho show, chief medical officer and founder of ortho laser orthopedic laser centers. So, you know, I'm a sports medicine guy. I'm 30 years into practice. I'm in private practice, a large multi-specialty group, part of private equity, which is a really cool thing that's going on right now. But yeah, I mean, I, I love practicing, love taking care of my patients, which is about maybe 70% of what I do. And then 30% of the stuff is all that other cool stuff that gets you up in the morning, gets you excited outside of clinical practice. That's fantastic. All those amazing hobbies that we have. So, you know, we thought we'd cover this topic today because, I mean, I still think JP is on the dark side with spine, right? JP, you still into the spine or no? Uh, true blue spine guy. Awesome. Awesome. And we have had quite a number of orthopedic spine surgeons on because, you know, we call ourselves neuropods. We're like sort of a hybrid of neurosurgery and orthopedics. But a lot of our listeners, they are hardcore brain guys. And uh, because you're not an ortho spine surgeon and you're our first non-spine surgeon, I'd love to breach a topic that um, gets brought up a lot, which is what is the difference between orthopedics and neurosurgery? So lots of folks out there on the cusp are thinking, I want to be a neurosurgeon, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon, both super cool fields. And um, are the stereotypes true? So, so maybe tell us a little about how you got into ortho and, and why it's the most amazing specialty. Yeah, I mean, we're the cool guys. I mean, for sure. I mean, sports medicine in orthopedics, we are the pinnacle of cool just because we were athletes when we were younger. Most of us had some sort of an injury, knew somebody, you know, you go see the orthopedic surgeon, the light goes off in your brain. You say, oh man, that's really what I want to do in life. You know, it's interesting when I, I'm in practice now nearly 30 years. So let's, let's roll the bean footage backwards a little bit. What were neurosurgeons doing 30 years ago? right? You were operating on nerves, like the brain and the spinal cord. You probably were actually doing some carpal tunnel stuff and things like that. But you guys had no idea how to use a screwdriver and a drill, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. You guys were really good at that lobotomy, sticking that screwdriver up people's noses or whatever you were doing. But the the, the point is like, we grew up on on hardware, right? Orthopedic surgeons. And that to me was always the major difference in the specialty. Like orthopedic surgeons, fused stuff and they put in metal and scoliosis and the neurosurgeons were taking out tumors and looking, you know, I remember doing brain surgery back in the day in residency and I'm 
that one of the neurosurgeons stuck with me. He said, "You can't leave until the you could you could read the newspaper through the irrigation before you close." Right? And I'm like, <laughs> "Okay, I'm not going to be a brain surgeon." <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm going to put on my my token resident hat, the trainee in the room, and I may have made this joke before on the podcast. But, and in fact, these days I'm dating myself now that step one is pass fail for all the students out there. But when I was in medical school, what we always said was to match into orthopedics, you have to have the ortho 500, where your score on step one and your max bench press had to sum to 500 or greater. And so I, I wonder, we, we always say, uh, Dr. Sibian, no gotcha questions on the podcast, but first I'll just ask, what can you bench? And then follow that up with, in, in your actual practice these days, how much truth is there to that? Like how much raw physicality is there in sports orthopedics? Yeah. So in the day, you know, I played lacrosse at Tufts and I would work out and I could bench 315 back in the day, which is, oh. I think, 345 plates on either side, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but those days are coming gone at the age of 59 as I'm turning shortly. But, you know, for anybody listening, whether you're a resident medical student or a doctor in practice, uh, surgery takes a real physical toll on your body. Uh, you know, you guys could operate on my neck tomorrow. Uh, and probably make me a lot better, right? We're squinching, we're keeping our focus on what we're looking at the entire time. And so you're popping those discs out and getting facet arthropathy, you know, left and right. And and then, you know, I've got OA in my right shoulder. I've got, you know, but that's what the nature of the, the work that we do actually is quite physical. Uh, you know, and it's interesting. I think that, you know, JP, you know, where you are now, if you're if you're labeling yourself as a spine specialist within neurosurgery, uh, and you're labeling yourself as a spine specialist within orthopedics, you guys are pretty much the same now. I mean, you know, you, you know, I know my guy's not going to dissect the tumor out of the middle of the spinal cord, but everything else, I mean, you guys are learning the same stuff. Am I wrong? Well, I don't know. I mean, Scott, I, I, I am always brought back to the point that it goes back to high school. You guys played football or rugby or whatever, and we played the piano, right? That's a stereotype, right? So <laughs> Well, look, I just had Albert Lin on, okay? It's a funny thing you say that, but Albert Lin is a, a shoulder specialist down at University of Pittsburgh. Sweetheart, really adore this guy. And we just, we just did his podcast. So I'm going, you know, look, you guys know this. You guys are podcasters, right? You got to break down the CV. You got to find some cool stuff because you always want to throw up softballs to your guests. And I get to the bottom of his CV and the dude was a freaking piano and violin virtuoso that played at Carnegie Hall. Just blew up our reputation. <laughs> but just a classic Chinese immigrant child, right? It's like he went to Harvard 17 times. He's like a Harvard medical, undergrad medical, MBA, residency, fellowship, and is a violin virtuoso, whatever. <laughs> well, I do want to come back to JP's point because, you know, I thought that neurosurgery, and this is a contentious point, had the lowest rate of female um, residency applicants and uh, actual residents. But the orthopedist told me it's actually lower in orthopedics. Is that true? Say that again one more time. That the, the percentage of, of women in your field, at least in the training, uh, is the lowest, even below neurosurgery now. 6%. The number 6% now, it's slowly growing. I think within training now, including all the women in training, it's probably up closer to 9%. Yeah. But is, is it, like JP said, is it because there's such a physicality to orthopedics as a specialty in general? I mean, what, is it really like that? Or are modern machines and robots making everything easier for even people as they get older? 
No, it, it's 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 much it's much more uh, a balanced affair right now with all the other stuff going on. You guys read the report, right? The New York Times that said that you know women surgeons clearly have better outcomes than males. Did you guys read that? I did, but I you know I I didn't like how the report was done. I don't disagree. I think that there's some real validity to their conclusions, but I also think that there's some flaws in how they do the analysis of what mean what it means to do a good surgery or not. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I have great respect for women within orthopedics. I think the biggest issue for most women that I've interviewed on the Ortho Show is not the physicality, uh, but it's the work-life balance. And uh, for you to be, you know, a successful wife, uh, a successful neurosurgeon, and a successful mother requires a tremendous amount of effort. Yeah, and I'll give a quick shout out. Uh, a recent episode I did a few weeks ago with Dr. Kate Sage. Uh, orthopedic trained surgeon who was a a foot ankle specialist for some time now is working in industry, but we got a lot into what it was like for her entering the field, obviously just the experience of medical school as a female at the time, but then getting into orthopedic surgery, coming in as a woman and what that experience was like, particularly now uh, going in and trying to educate spine surgeons, orthopedic and neurospine surgeons uh, as the girl in the room, so to speak. Um, so th- there is that raw physicality that we've been talking about. And it- it's funny because I think uh, Dr. Wayne down in Miami, Dr. Levy operated for some period of time uh, with a sling on after a skiing accident. Um, we've had some attendings here at Rush who are cranial neurosurgeons who operate with uh, clavicle or shoulder injuries because so much of cranial neurosurgery is done with the fingertips. But the the spine procedures and I imagine a lot of the big ortho procedures uh, outside of the spine is a lot more elbows, shoulders, knees, and toes, as it were. Yeah, you know, as a general rule, you don't like to see your surgeon rolling out of the OR with a sling on. But you know, whatever. I mean, that's maybe that's just me personally. Or I always tell all my patients that I've operated on that have done a rotator cuff or shoulder replacement or whatever. It's like, yeah, you can drive, but I wouldn't get out of the car after a car accident with your sling on. <laughs> you know, it's like make sure that uh, people know you're doing okay. You know, I think it's I think it's interesting. Uh, I mean, the brain surgery thing, you guys have that sort of reputation, right? Oh, you know, like I'm a brain surgeon. Can I tell a funny story? Do you guys know Bruce Cook? Is that name familiar? No, go on. Yeah, he's a neurosurgeon locally in our area, exceptionally well-trained. He actually helped take care of Michael J. Fox with his Parkinson's early on. So he had that stereotactic thing well before all the crazy stuff that you guys have now. But, you know, Bruce would always tell the stories like, Yes, Scott, I'm a brain surgeon. And so literally when he would get like the coolest thing about being a neurosurgeon is like if he had a brain bleed that he had to rush in, he would literally call the state police and sort of, you know, give them a heads up and say, look, I'm going to be on the highway. Do you mind giving me an escort? <laughs> so he'd get this wow. like raging escort all the way into the hospital to go save somebody. And like, I thought that was a lot of fun. Cool. Cool story. You, you know, that's exactly what I wanted to ask you next about. It, it is very interesting because in addition to thinking about the physical differences between what we do, obviously there's different classifications of pathology and urgencies to treat them. And so again, setting aside the spine, uh, but thinking about elective joint and, and non-spine orthopedic surgery compared with neurosurgery, my experience as a resident, when I go in to meet a new patient, it's typically on the inpatient setting, it's a consult and you know, 80, 90% of the time, it's some routine consult that's not going to need any surgery, but we're being called because there's a small bleed or something like that. 
and I walk into the room and I say, hi, I'm Dr. Colson with neurosurgery. By the way, you almost certainly won't need any kind of surgery. And I try to set them at ease immediately. Um, but in your practice, in your clinic, are the people you're seeing, Dr. Sigmund, are they happy to see you? Are they relieved? Are they trepidatious? Because it's still surgery, but it's not probably life and death, right? Yeah. I mean, I've I, you know, JP, I've reached critical mass in my practice. You know, I show up to work every day. There's 70 patients waiting to see me. I operate on 15 patients a week or maybe more. Uh, and so I built up that reputation. So a lot of the patients that are coming in to see me are carrying an MRI of their shoulder with a rotator cuff tear. They've already been told that they need surgery, but they've done their research and they want me to do it. So they're happy. And so that's one of the things that I always talk about when it talks, when, when I talk about building a professional brand, right? You know, how do you do that? How do you, so one of the most satisfying things you can do in clinical practice, not in the hospital, but in the office setting is every time I know I'm going to open up the door to see my next patient, that patient's there because they want to see me. How do you identify how do you let your patients know so you can find the ideal patients that you want to care for? And I think that's really a major thing that we're seeing now with social media and branding, messaging to your patients. 75% of patients now Google their doctor and look at your reviews before coming to see you for the first time. Now, Scott, I want to take this further in terms of that because you know, I've been pretty vocal about this in the past. I really sort of don't like the concept of, of social media or even Google. And I always tell my patients... If a spine surgeon, now this may be just spine, if a spine surgeon has five stars, that's paid for, that's bought, right? There's no such thing as a spine surgeon with five stars. And I know that doesn't totally translate into the um, world of sports or even hips and knees, but tell us a little about how you do this branding because, you know, I can't share any knowledge about it except to avoid it. All right. So so your brand is, is individual to yourself. And, and what do I mean by that? So like, for example, I'll give you an example. Like there's uh, Seth Sherman, who actually is a, um, uh, he's a Rush fellow, is now in practice. He's a team physician out at, at, uh, at Stanford. He's a society guy. He's young. He's like 40 years old, but he literally is invited around the world because of the research that he's done and the effort he's put in to become the society guy. So what does that mean? So he lets people know where he is around the world. And so patients are like, wow. He's got to be good. He just got invited to go to Rome to give a presentation. So that's one aspect. Uh, you might be the type of person that really is about academics. You want to share the literature uh, of support and the papers that you've written. Another thing may be about patient education. You show testimonials. You show videos describing what a rotator cuff tear looks like, or maybe what a herniated disc looks like. You know, So those are types of things. There's multiple facets that you can do, that you can incorporate to become your persona, which is perceived. It's different than, you know, hey, Mike, I, you know, I was flying out to, to Rochester, New York, and I opened up that airline thing, and there was Mike Wang's picture with his suit and tie on as the guy that's being advertised inside those, you know, those airline uh, magazines that we used to see. You guys know what I'm talking about. Well, yeah, I, I was just going to ask, I mean, obviously, you, you talk about these different ways to build a brand, uh, academics, organizations, uh, frank advertisements, but obviously you have a podcast and we're on a podcast right now. And I know that this show, our neurosurgery podcast is very much pointed at the community of neurosurgeons, affiliated specialties, affiliated professionals. This is a professional community talk show about life in the field. This is not a patient facing podcast. So 
with your show from the episodes I've listened to and what I've looked through, it seems like more also of a professional facing show, but do you talk about your podcast with your patients? Do you do any patient centered content on that as part of your patient facing brand? Great question. So I really use the podcast, you know, we sort of become, we, we become the voice of orthopedics is sort of the word that sort of gets around. We bring you the best of the best in orthopedics. And it's like you guys were talking, it's really what we focus on more is the story of the individual, the remarkable individual that we're going to share to the world that just happens to be an orthopedic surgeon. So we talk about their history, where they grew up, and they talk about their wives and how they met their wives. And then they talk about their success stories and their branding. And I always say, you know, my mother Judy's listening. So whatever you're going to tell us on the technical side, she needs to understand it. So believe it or not, we have a fairly large, you know, listening and, and viewership outside of orthopedic surgeons. And that's within industry, for example, the orthopedic medical device industry, pharma, we have tremendous pharma followers. And then we just got some average people. Can I tell a funny story? Please. Yeah. So the last OSEP meeting, so Mike, the last OSEP meeting a year ago, it's in Boston. Two of my friends, Ira Kirschenbaum and, um, and uh, who was it? I think it, uh, it doesn't matter who, but two of my close friends are in the backseat of an Uber. And the Uber driver leans over and he says, hey, are you guys at the orthopedic conference? And they say, yeah, we sure are. He's like, do you mind if I play you like my favorite podcast? And they were like, yeah, sure. What's it going to be? They're like, whatever, you know? He's like, oh, it's called the Ortho Show. Which episode would you like to listen to? I swear to God. And the two of them in the back were like, well, you got to pick my episode. He was like, no, you got to listen to my episode. They were both Ortho Show alums. So the brand that we have, you know, is really about sharing the unique, amazing stories of you know, democratizing orthopedics to make it sort of like we're, we're, we're people too. And this is the stuff that we do. So, you know, that I love that. And, you know, the birth of this podcast, JP, I think, uh, goes back to the Dr. Death podcast. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. We didn't want the public or anybody to see that as the outward facing part of what we are. And it was almost like an audit, but tell us about the beginning of the ortho show. How did that get started? So great, great story, Mike. So, you know, I was, um, I was sort of building my brand, you know, doing my thing. And, and then I got asked to be a guest for OSET like three years ago. And the ortho show had already been established. Um, and they brought me on as a guest and I was pretty popular. And it was one of their more popular episodes. And then all of a sudden the world decided to stop, right? They didn't need, you know, unfortunately, sports medicine with big surgeons and setting up a pandemic. It didn't have much to do. And they called me and they said, do you mind being a guest host for 10 episodes? Because we think your connection with the doctors would, would be good and would be great for the stories. And after 10 episodes, it became 150 episodes. And then subsequently, with my partner, we have bought them out. I now own the Ortho Show name and the entire podcast as part of you know multiple things that I do. I think orthopedic surgery has become a side hustle for me. Uh, but you know it's it's something that I'm quite passionate about. We now have monetized. We have sponsors across medical industry because because what we do is we bring on these guests uh, and then we weave in something that they're doing, right? So for you guys, maybe it's some new screw or some new you know nutritional thing that you're doing within spine surgery. And that group then sponsors the episode, but it's not an infomercial. We really sort of tell the story of the individual, and then we weave in the concepts for the sponsor. So that's been it's been good. It's a lucrative sort of business that we've developed. Yeah, you know, I can tell just in the brief time we've been talking that you, like me, and like so many of the best people in the world, are a born talker. But I wonder if 
having come to this podcasting side hustle, as you say, uh, so late in your career and as a fully developed adult, have you noticed that over time you've gotten better at it? Because people don't really appreciate that it's more than just having a conversation, but even the art of conversation itself can be a skill and you can get better at it and be better at it, even though it's something that people do every day. So have you noticed the longer you do it, the better you get at just talking to someone, disarming them, getting them to open up? 100% is a skill set that can be developed. And the number one thing that you can do, JP, is to do your research. So I whiteboard out every guest personally. Uh, it's a time commitment, uh, but I feel like if I have an assistant or somebody else do it, I'm not going to know that person. Uh, so I literally dive into their CV. I go into LinkedIn. I find the stuff that really sort of they're not expecting to hear. Uh, and then because of the fact that I'm an expert in this area, I know a ton of people. There's always someone else that we know. And it's a very, just like we are here, it's a very natural conversation. Next thing you know, 30 minutes blow by. Uh, I actually, to be honest with you, I enjoy it so much, guys, that I would, I've been talking, you know, I want to venture out of, you know, orthopedics and get into a little bit more mainstream. Do you guys do Peloton? I have. You have. Come, what are you doing, Mike? What do you got for exercise? What do you got for me? I work out a ton, but I don't do anything high intensity. And uh, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't need the motivation of the Peloton. I probably get on the treadmill, ride the bike for like hours a day, but yeah, I don't do, I don't, but I admire it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. The, the reason I bring it up is just because I would love to like interview one of one of the uh, the Peloton you know hosts. I mean, they're just excited. They got a lot going on. So the question is, can you sort of branch out? And I challenge you guys. I mean, you know, do you want? Like, listen, I mean, people don't know about neurosurgery, right? Neurosurgeons they think like you guys are. You know, you watch what's the show on Netflix? What's the guy's name who got who broke his neck? What's the guy from New York? You guys are wait. You guys are not spending enough time. You guys got to get some more screen time here, boys. I'm a resident. You think I'm on Netflix? <laughs> Come on, man. You guys don't work anymore. What's the, what's the max hours these days? What do you got? Like, you can go get the oil changed. You can get your teeth cleaned as a resident now. Scott, there are so many neurosurgeons in the press, and they're all fake. They're all these, you know, any movie, you know, Doctor Strange, right? All these people are neurosurgeons, McDreamy, right? But but we have this persona out there, but I don't know if it's that real. So you're right. We need to get more granular on who we are. But But I want to turn this back to you and ask you this. How many interviews have you done? And I want to hear, like, how many have you done? Maybe like 300? Uh, we're yeah, probably pretty close, pretty close. Yeah. So, so what's your favorite one? So that's a, one of my favorites. My, I'll tell you when my, all of my favorites are when I'm with like my close friends that are superstars. Like for example, Bill Levine, who's the chairman of orthopedics at Columbia is just this iconic dude. He was like my co-chief resident. Right. And then Sharif Bechet, who's another great friend of mine, who was a shoulder specialist, we went to Europe to learn this new operation, which was like, it's sort of a, you know, climbing Mount Everest, the Mount Everest of shoulder arthroscopy. It's called an arthroscopic ladder J. It took us six months to learn, stuff like that. But my, probably one of my all-time favorites was just this past week. It's Rick Matson. Who is Rick Matson? He is one of the founding fathers of shoulder surgery. Now, he started in the 70s, and we just take it for granted, right? Shoulder surgery is shoulder surgery. But nobody was operating on the shoulder in the 70s. There was only one guy. His name was Charlie Near. 
and he was the, the professor of, of orthopedics at Columbia. And Rick just tells this rich story of some of the most amazing names in shoulder that were all at the infancy of how things started. And then he has this book called Rockwood and Madsen, which is the Bible of shoulder surgery. And get this, he's 79 years of age. He's smart as a tack. He's still operating, still taking care of patients. And he's a lovely human being. And it was just so amazing. You take this person on a pedestal that you think of, but they're just really cool, super nice people. Wow. Well, Dr. Sigmund, uh, to tip my hat to your own methods, I did do a, l- a little homework before this conversation. And while I'm tempted Uh-oh. to, to <laughs> no, while I'm tempted to dig into your time at Maryland, I have a brother-in-law who pitched for the Terps and Dr. Wang and I both have some close friends in the neurosurgical department there. I'm more interested in something towards the bottom of your CV, uh, where <laughs> apparently you are a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland. So let me just throw a question mark on that. How? Why? How, <laughs> how did that happen? And, and what's your role with them? To share that with us. It sounds fascinating. Oh, I think that's fantastic. This is a perfect lead in, JP. I want to thank you. I'm actually uh, preparing for my TED Talk in Davenport, Iowa on October 12th. And my TED Talk is about the evolution of creating an opioid sparing pathway in surgery, right? Uh, I lived through the worst of the times when it came to the opioid epidemic. We were prescribing opioids at an alarming rate. People were dying. Communities, people were just ravaged by this process. And I took the lead about over a decade ago in coming up with a, you know, changing the paradigm of post-op pain management. It's become a passion. As you know, when I started off the podcast, I said the original opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon. And so that's been a really long process for me. But to make the the story short, I was invited. Uh, to give a talk on opioid sparing as well as a shoulder thing that I was doing over in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, It was very well received. And then I got an email about six months later stating that they they were so impressed and that they would like to invite me back to give another lecture and that they were going to invite me to become a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. So I was like, that is an absolute sign me up. I am on my way. And it was one of the coolest experiences of my life. Uh, We went over, they give you a robe. It's a very serious thing. You're looking around in the hall at Trinity College and, you know, the, um, some of the greatest names in medicine are up on this wall that have been inducted into this thing. And I was just like, this was absolutely amazing. And I did it with a friend of mine who was there too. Uh, Sean McMillan is a dear friend of mine. And uh, we just had an amazing time and it was an amazing experience. And one of those things you just chalk them in life that just, uh, you'll never forget. Well, that's tremendous. And and just so that you know you're among friends, because I know Dr. Wang is too humble to tell you, uh, he actually established the first enhanced recovery after surgery protocol in spine surgery uh, at the University of Miami. So shout out to them. Shout out to uh, Dr. Jay Grossman, the anesthesiologist who, who pioneered it with Dr. Wang, and uh, Damian Brusco, a resident in neurosurgery at Miami who really helped with that rollout. Because I know he's too humble to tell you, but you're among friends here with uh, sparing postoperative opioids. Well, I mean, it's just so important. And Mike, uh, you know, I'm so proud of you. Yes, I'm, I'm aware that you are a leader in this process as well. And I think that's a big part of how we've you know, sort of met each other along in our journey. Uh, but it is a, it's a huge responsibility that we have. And it, I'm just so proud now that, you know, JP, I'm sure it's an integral part of what you're doing and learning in residency about minimizing opioids and developing these strategies. And for those docs out there that are listening to us, 
you know, if you're not involved in, you know, identifying an ERAS protocol, if you're, if you're not reducing the number of opioids that you're prescribing, you know, please educate yourself and learn from the best and really try and help us on this path to, to change the paradigm. Well, Dr. Sigmund, we want to thank you for being so generous with your time coming on our show and uh, your, your, your energy, enthusiasm, creativity shines right through. It was such a pleasure to meet you at OSET. Why don't you uh, help us close this out by uh, telling our listeners how they can uh, listen to your show and what platforms you're on and, and let them know a little about what, what, what the ortho show is really going to be like. Right? It's, uh, we get a little taste here how dynamic you are. We want to hear more. So first and foremost, you guys are going to come on? Yeah. Sure. All right. Well, that's terrific. We love a home and away. There's nothing better than that. You know, my friends always joke around with me. They're like, you know, <laughs> all you need to do to find me is just turn on your computer and you'll see me somewhere. But uh, I'm a huge fan of LinkedIn. I think that's just a wonderful way to develop networks within, you know, your community uh, of, of colleagues across industry. Uh, and so also on Instagram and Facebook, I dabble a little bit in TikTok there every once in a while too, just to have a little bit of fun. The Ortho Show, you can listen to in all places you listen to podcasts. We also have a YouTube channel. We are video at this point. So we've been excited as we changed ownership. We brought that in. Uh, you know, Chief Medical Officer and Founder of Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers. For those listeners out there that are interested in perhaps owning a franchise that's going to bring alternative uh, pain strategies to communities in a missionary way. We'd love to talk to you about that as well. So a lot going on here, but so happy that I was able to make the opportunity to get on the show. JP and Mike, I can't thank you enough for having me. Thank you, sir. Follow the fro. <laughs> love it. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.